Good morning, everybody. Um, my wife, Tina, and I are privileged to serve as the leaders here, and it's our privilege to have you uh, this morning. We appreciate the investment of your trust. We realize that this is one of the prime hours of the week, and so we consider that trust um, uh, a sacred gift. We don't take it lightly. Uh, I, I want to just echo Tony's uh, encouragement to look at the opportunities to serve in the church planting intensive. This is a really exciting opportunity. Um, the Vineyard is a church planting movement, and of the, the 600 churches in the United States now, the overwhelming majority of those were planted out of other churches, as were we. And so you're all eating the fruit of church planting, and this will be our time to serve Back to the movement, Michael Gatlin, the National Director of Church Planning, will be with us that weekend. And um, here's, the, here's the secret. If you come to serve in a couple of different ways, then you get to kind of eavesdrop the whole weekend. So, you know, you, you save the registration, although you didn't hear me say that. Uh, but anyway, it'd be a great opportunity. You know, if you've ever felt any kind of a nudge or calling to church planting or to missions or to full-time Christian service in, a, in another way, this might be a great opportunity to hang around, worship, receive ministry, and then you get to serve as well. So we just uh, say, hey, check that out. It'd be a great opportunity. One other thing, too, is that some of you have probably heard tonight at 7 o'clock on the History Channel, there's a new show called The Bible. And I think it's a five or a six part series that uh, uh, maybe give a, a new spin on um, a dramatization from Genesis to Revelation. So just want to call that to your attention if you're so inclined. We cannot vouch for its theology or its application. But, hey, you know what? We all watch the Ten Commandments, right? And, <laughs> and that's a stretch. So anyway. Charlton Heston was there. He is Moses. Rather cheesy special effects. We'll see how it kind of new stuff, you know, in the day of computer generation. Well, even though the Midwest got hammered with another six-inch snowstorm this past Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, today is the 3rd of March, and so this means this month we can expect the average daily temperature to be 50 degrees. And this month only be 2.81 inches of precipitation in 30 days. And one of the things that I love about living in the Midwest is the four distinct seasons. And we are right now on the cusp of spring when the landscape will burst forth with new life, uh, blossoms and flowers and lots of color and fresh new growth. And to me, this unrelenting rhythm speaks very powerfully of God's faithfulness. You know why? Because every year, spring never fails to arrive. And it's accompanied with a hope that comes from a season of renewal. Well, today we are continuing our church's second 40-day adventure, following the radical Jesus. And we're in a life-changing season of growth and renewal as we uh, coincide with a historic observation of Lent, culminating with a celebration of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. Now, our expectations are rooted in three cornerstone prayers. First, for ourselves, that we, we experience uh, the powerful, radical Jesus in more personal ways, ourselves and our family. Secondly, for our friends, that the Holy Spirit would touch our five unchurched friends with the power of the kingdom. And then thirdly, for our church family and the communities in which we live, that God's kingdom, his love, his mercy, his truth and power would break through into our church family and in our communities in the way 
he knows we need. We're also studying through the entire Gospel of Mark, reading two chapters a week. This week, in anticipation of my message, The Best of Times, Worst of Times, we've read Mark's Gospels, chapters 5 and 6. And then lastly, we've suggested that our 40-day adventure be undergirded with some sort of fasting. And I want to just encourage you that are uh, fasting in any sort of way to uh, stay at it. If you've fallen off the horse, get back on it. In the kingdom, it's not so important how many times you fall off. It's it, What counts is how many times you get back in the saddle. And so if you've messed up in fasting or given up, I just want to encourage you this week, let's start afresh. And uh, we got, you know, 30 days yet to go. I'm grateful for the ways the Holy Spirit's already moving. I'd just like to read to you one such story. Melissa writes, my 40 days, I'm enjoying my private times of worship and prayer each morning. I've, I've experienced more faith instead of fear, more freedom instead of anxiety in life and worship. Life is full. God is good. And I praise him. Great report, Melissa. And I'd love to read yours. Uh, just take a note to, uh, today, a time today, and write down uh, your 40-day adventure report on your Connect card. Let's pray together. Lord, we just want to say good morning. How are you? We're doing fine. Uh, and we're just grateful for the opportunity to gather together with friends and family and, and say uh, we want to use this hour, Lord, as a way of indicating to you that we want our whole life to fully count for you, Jesus. Come today and bring your kingdom. Put power on your word to our lives And not just here, but right next door in Vineyard Kids, where our kids are learning and growing, worshiping and sharing and praying today, too. Lord, let us leave different than when we came. It's our prayer in your name. Amen. In Mark's Gospel, chapters 5 and 6, we read accounts of some of the most dramatic miracles in the ministry of Jesus. We also are going to see the theme of spiritual warfare continuing through. Jesus, the warrior king, has come to establish God's kingdom, overturning the kingdom of Satan, restoring God's good creation that fell under the curse, plundering the strong man's house by redeeming his goods, people. And at the same time, we're now going to begin to see resistance to Jesus's ministry, uh, his radical words and works continuing to mount. In the words of Charles Dickens, it is the best of times, the worst of times. Mark 5, verses 1 to 20, is arguably the most dramatic account of a deliverance story in the Gospels. Jesus and his disciples enter the region of the Gerasenes. It's a Gentile territory, and they encountered a man with an evil, or more literally, an unclean spirit. Jesus' ministry now pushed beyond Jewish borders, and in a A prophetic way, it was indicating that Jesus is now desiring to set the whole world free, not just the Jews. This man lived among the tombs. He had supernatural strength. He could not be restrained. Uh, He howled and was self-destructive. Today we would call him a cutter as as he cut himself with sharp stones. This is a severe case of demonization the word in the in the original language does not mean possessed as is often translated but rather demonized to be under the influence and control of a demon death and destruction were all over this guy verse 6 reads that when jesus was still some distance away the man saw him ran to meet him and bowed low before him now this story is going to serve as a primer 
for instruction on deliverance. And we're going to note just a few things as we work our way through it. First, we understand that no matter how demonized a person uh, might be, there's always the ability to exercise the human will and come to Jesus for help. The devil can't keep anyone from coming to Jesus. No one is so far gone, uh, you know, such a captive to the devil, or so enslaved in, de- in demonic bondage or addiction or sin or brokenness that they are beyond hope if they have a fundamental desire to come to Jesus. And so, friends, just be encouraged right out, right out of the gate this morning that nothing can stop the advance of God's kingdom in your life, in the lives of those you love, or in your five friends. If there is a desire, nothing can stop the advance of God's kingdom. Jesus commanded in verse 8, Come out of the man, you evil spirit. But the demons actually resisted by both shrieking and begging not to be tortured. I think it indicates that they knew their ultimate fate and that their supreme challenger had actually arrived. So Jesus then asked the demons to identify themselves, which they did with the name Legion. Now, a Roman army legion consisted of about 6,000 men. So this poor man was inhabited by an army of spirits. But this shows us that demons have names, they don't occupy space, and they seem to be territorial in the sense that they beg not to be sent from the area, but rather uh, into the herd of pigs that was feeding nearby. So Jesus gave them permission to go. And then as Mark pulls the camera back so that we can see the landscape, we observe the demons leave the man and go into the pigs who rushed over a nearby cliff into the lake and drowned. So we also see now that deliverance is somewhat progressive, not necessarily instantaneous, even for Jesus. But it is complete, total and complete. Verse 15, we see that the man was sitting there clothed and perfectly sane. So this is a power encounter of the most dramatic kind. And it illustrates to me that Jesus has complete authority over the devil. Over the last three decades in ministry, uh, I've been a part of many deliverances, uh, perhaps none quite this extreme, but I can assure you that the devil and his demons are real, And I've delivered both Christians and non-Christians from evil spirits. And this text encourages me in this way. If we want to follow the radical Jesus, then delivering people from demons should be an expected normal part of our ministry. Here's the catch. We cannot cast out what Jesus wants to heal through healing prayer or confession and repentance counseling, therapy, or medication. On the other hand, neither can we medicate or heal what needs to be delivered and cast out. And now there's no formula, which is why we need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. For example, not all addictions are necessarily demons. But Jesus also shows us that neither are muteness or deafness or epilepsy merely organic disorders that need healings. Sometimes they're demonic and the demons need to be cast out. So if we're going to follow the radical Jesus, we'd better prepare at the Holy Spirit's instruction to actually minister deliverance when it's needed. 
and then to know the difference of the times when it's not deliverance, it's actually healing prayer they need. This story also illustrates that there are times when the results of kingdom ministry through deliverance, it'll change and upset people's lives, their routines, their livelihoods, their relationships, or even the lives of people who are not involved. I mean, who paid for the roof when those four guys tore the shingles off? And and what about the 2,000 pigs that the herdsmen lost in this story? So we've got to be prepared for some understandable backlash when people change and things happen, when sinful habits stop or people's values and practices change, their social circles alter, or there's an effect in property. Not everybody's going to like that. The text concludes in this case in verse 17 that people beg Jesus to go away and leave us alone. Now, in Mark 5, verses 21 to 43, Jesus returned to Jewish soil. The crowd was still unrelenting, and he's met by a desperate ruler of the local synagogue, Jairus, who threw aside his dignity uh, by falling down at Jesus' feet in a desperate, passionate plea for Jesus to come and heal his dying daughter. Jesus agreed to go. But in the chaos of the crowd is a woman whose condition is uh, worsening, chronic, and she'd been bleeding for 12 years, spent her resources on doctors, and rather than getting better, she had uh, actually gotten worse. And so here you have a picture of total helplessness. I mean, she is bankrupt. She'd heard of Jesus and is now determined to actually press through the crowd and touch the hem of his robe, thinking that when she did, she could be healed. Now, In this culture, that action is very significant. In Jewish law, she would have been considered unclean, and she um, would have been forbidden to have been in any public setting. She would defile anyone that she touched. But she pushed through all of the cultural and religious resistance, touched Jesus' robe, and was immediately healed. In fact, the text reads that Jesus actually felt virtue or power leaving his body and touching her. And when that happened, he asked, who touched my robe? She came and fell at Jesus' feet, fearful, but Jesus pronounced her whole because of her faith. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be free from your suffering, Jesus said. So the healing in Jesus' kingdom is total and complete. And it affected, first, her body. She was physically healed. Her emotions, Jesus tenderly ministered to her soul, calling her daughter. Uh, thirdly, her finances, no more medical expenses. Uh, fourthly, her relationships. She was actually restored to social life in the community. She could return to worshiping in church and being seen and, and uh, going to the marketplace. And lastly, uh, her significance and self-worth. No more guilt or shame. So the, the healing that she experienced on many different levels was total and complete. This encourages me that Jesus came to liberate his desperate people, even an unclean unclean woman in that culture with uh, uh, freedom in every dimension of life. And we'll even sing and celebrate this powerful truth in the song, Your Love Never Fails Today. Powerful. Now, we've said that uh, as we're coming through the Gospel of Mark, uh, there are times when 
we, we see it, that Jesus does things. That's called the indicative. And in response to Jesus taking the initiative, we need to respond. That's the imperative. What must we do? Indicative imperative. And we've shortened that to, to the I-I exam. Uh, that, that, you know, if you don't track all the indicative imperative stuff, that's fine. Just set that on side and just the I-I exam are these, these moments of, of opportunity where we reflect on, on what it is we're learning. And at this point in the story, my I-I exam would be, how do I yet need to experience Jesus's total freedom in all areas of my life in the way this woman did? Now, while Jesus was still speaking, messengers from Jairus's house arrived with news that his daughter had died. And so in this very moment, all of Jairus's hopes and dreams for his daughter are gone. And at that moment, we can imagine he experienced shock and then denial and then despair and probably a little bit of anger. You know, he probably was upset thinking, why did Jesus have to bother and stop to talk to this woman or you know, why did that woman interrupt? Couldn't Jesus have just like ignored her or like prevented what actually happened? But you notice Jesus is never in a hurry. And do you notice that all the way through the Gospels? It's no more difficult for him to raise the dead than it is to heal a sick girl. So he took his time. This story teaches us another powerful lesson that death isn't the final word. So Jesus simply said, don't be afraid, just have faith. In our most desperate moments of shock and denial, despair, anger, and even hopelessness, Jesus the King declares to all of us, don't be afraid, just believe. We're going to celebrate that powerful truth, that radical powerful truth in the song, I will hold on today. You can hold on to what Jesus says. Don't be afraid. Just trust me. You don't have to believe the reports as they come in. The reports from the doctor or from the newspaper or from the economy or from your roommate or wherever. You don't have to believe the reports that you hear. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Jesus arrived at the house and he announced the child isn't dead. She's only asleep. Well, Clearly, she was dead. The professional mourners who were making chaos and the family and crowd knew for a fact that she was dead. And so when Jesus said that the girl was asleep, he certainly didn't mean that she wasn't dead, but rather that death was not the last word. So Jesus put everybody out of the house. He took the girl's mom and dad with Peter, James, and John, his closest three, and tenderly taking her by the hand. Isn't it neat how Mark includes that detail? Because Jesus knows that when she resuscitates, she wants, he wants her to be met by someone uh, tenderly expressing God's love and concern. He simply commanded, little girl, get up. A four-word prayer. And look at the results. She did. <laughs> she awoke. Now, this is one of three resuscitations recorded in the Gospels, Lazarus in John 11 and the widow of Nain's son, dead son in Luke 9, I believe it is. But this radical, miraculous intervention of the conventional laws of physics and nature prove that God's kingdom is actually here. It points to Jesus' complete authority over the enemy, over his kingdom works of darkness and bondage, disease, 
And now Jesus, the king, is is exercising authority over Satan in death as well. We've seen authority by Jesus demonstrated over sickness and disease, over demons, over storms in nature, over the religious and community structures of piety and purity and the Sabbath law. And now Jesus shows that he is Lord of life, Lord of death itself. And in this act of raising the girl from the dead, it's in a way that he anticipates his own resurrection as the first fruits of that which is to come. In other words, all, all Jews believed in the resurrection at the end of the age when the new age would dawn and the Messiah would usher in the new kingdom. But Jesus is now announcing his resurrection as the first fruits coming in the middle of time in an unexpected way as the first fruits of the whole resurrection of the dead that will come at the end of the age. So the point is, uh, his word, little girl get up, is the last word over death and hell. One day, all of us who have died in Christ will hear those words spoken to us. And at that moment, we will come up out of the grave, we will receive a new redeemed body, and we will live in the presence of Jesus on the renewed earth forever. Friends, uh, I got news for you. Heaven is not your goal. Heaven is some temporary intermediate state that you'll receive until the anticipation of the new heaven and the new earth when Jesus comes to live on the earth with those of us who are redeemed in a new body. And in this sense, heaven's not the goal. The resurrection is the crowning hope of the Christian faith. And that's often overshadowed. The resurrection is what we're looking for. Followers of Jesus need to have no fear of death because we've already crossed from death to life and we're anticipating the day when our spirit soul will be reunited with our redeemed body and will live in the presence of Jesus on a new recreated earth when Jesus makes all things new. So my eye eye exam at this point in the story is what, if anything, do I fear yet about death and why? Well, in the middle of Jesus' swelling popularity, he now returned to Nazareth and will discover that the hometown crowd is not very excited in Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. I mean, they knew Jesus' family. Uh, there was apparently nothing spectacular about Jesus as a boy growing up. And in their minds, the ordinary boy that they knew still overshadowed the extraordinary man that's now working miracles. And their derision was particularly expressive. The text reads that they called Jesus the son of Mary. Interesting, because normally a man would have been identified by his father rather than his mother. But in this case, the charge of illegitimacy that Jesus didn't have a father had stuck since the time that he was conceived in the virgin birth. Some of you have struggled with labels that have been affixed over your life for years or decades. And I just want to encourage you today that there's freedom for you to step out from underneath that label into your new identity in Jesus. Today, we could pray for you that the power of that label be broken. Now, the unbelief of the townspeople limited Jesus's kingdom ministry. Did you find that staggering? 
the Bible says that Jesus could do no mighty works there because of their unbelief. There are some things Jesus cannot do because people won't let him. It's the best of times. It's the worst of times. We're now beginning to see a mounting rejection, and it's going to be a sign of things to come. My I.I. exam is this. Is there any unbelief in my life that limits what Jesus can do? Or are there any labels that that uh, have been affixed to me that uh, uh, that create some kind of barrier uh, under which I'm still living? And could Jesus touch those today? Now, in verses 6 to 13, Jesus commissions the 12 and sends them out two by two. And in this case, he's now taking his personal training of the 12, like, to the next level. Now, in Vineyard history, John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, he called this the discipleship loop. And here's how it goes. Phase one, Jesus did kingdom ministry. Phase two, the tw- uh, Jesus did kingdom ministry with the 12 watching. Phase three was the 12 did kingdom ministry with Jesus observing and critiquing. And then phase four is the 12 were sent out to do kingdom ministry by themselves. And so now it's their turn. Jesus is releasing them to do what he had done. And in a way, all of us who are followers of the radical Jesus are also sent out. Phase four, eventually this is where you go. Uh, We don't just get to enjoy Jesus and the benefits of the kingdom and the church. One big happy family. And we are that, hopefully, but we're sent out. We are thrust into mission. You've heard me say before, into our three worlds, where we work, where we live, and the spheres in which we do life. We are, uh, if we're following the radical Jesus, he's going to lead us and propel us into mission to compassionately and powerfully extend his kingdom, his love and his truth, his mercy and his power into our three Worlds, And so my eye exam is this. To whom is the radical Jesus uh, specifically sending me to share his love, his truth, and his power? Now, Mark 6, the balance of the chapter, contains a, a second dark and ominous shadow in the account of the death of John the baptizer. John had confronted Herod, one of the local leaders, rulers about the inappropriateness of his marriage to his brother Philip's ex-wife. And then because of Herod's lust and ego and pride and general immorality, he had John the baptizer tragically, brutally, and without announcement beheaded in prison. And the point here is that when the kingdom of God confronts the kingdom of darkness, uh, the collision is often violent. The very foundations of the church in John and Jesus are stained in blood. Truth is first beheaded in John, secondly, then crucified in Jesus, as the powers of this world wreck havoc. And the trail of blood doesn't stop with John and Jesus. 
it, it continues uninterrupted through history as the blood of the martyrs witness to the power of the kingdom. The power that nothing's going to stop the advance of God's kingdom until God says it's time. The time is fulfilled. The power of the kingdom that, though resisted, there is still a great harvest coming, what we've been learning through the parables and the ministry of Jesus. And thirdly, that though small and insignificant, as tiny as a grain of mustard seed, yet the kingdom will grow to be pervasive, the biggest of all the plants in the garden. That is, it will grow to cover the entire earth. Nothing can stop the advance of the kingdom. Now, What I find particularly challenging about this dark note in the otherwise triumphant song that Mark is writing is that John's calling is under the sovereign uh, providence of God, but it is mysterious. Not many of us sign up for a John the Baptist calling, do we? Jesus could have prevented the tragedy in the same way that Jesus could have prevented every other evil tragedy on the face of the earth since creation. But he doesn't. He honors the gift of free will that he's bestowed on all, a gift that some people elect to exercise for good and that others exercise to invoke incredible harm and destruction on others. It's all under God's mysterious sovereign providence. And friends, God's callings on some of his children's lives will include suffering and persecution, imprisonment, even martyrdom. So my I.I. exam is, am I willing to fully embrace all the aspects of God's call on my life? Now, reeling from the brutal slain of his cousin, Jesus wanted to withdraw to a quiet place and rest with the twelve. But they're hounded by the crowd, the crowd that now numbers, the text reads, 5,000 men. If you included women and children, it could have easily reached twenty to 25,000 people. But Mark records that Jesus had compassion on them. Now, compassion is a stronger word than love. Um, it, 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 it means filled with deep suffering for those who suffer it. In the old King James, it's, it's the bowels of compassion because it, it, it locates the source and seat of that emotion in the centermost of our being. It, it's a, uh, it, it means that, you know, Jesus felt something very deep and was, was moved to action as a result. He didn't brush the crowd off. He didn't get back in the boat, you know, and and set sail for a further port down the the seacoast. He didn't rebuke the audience for their thoughtlessness. You know, can't you just give us time and space to grieve John's death? No, he went into action. He, He began to teach and minister once again. In this sense, it encourages me that Jesus is the quintessential shepherd. Friends, in your life, Jesus... Though the enemy may tell you otherwise, he is never too busy, he's never too tired, he's never too distracted, he's never too preoccupied to be your shepherd at your point of need. Now, so important are the lessons from this story of feeding the 5,000 that the Holy Spirit saw fit to record it in all four Gospels. The only miracle that's recorded by the Holy Spirit in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As the sun was setting... Both time and place are now against Jesus and the twelve in caring for the vast crowd. 
The text reads that the people are hungry and they need to eat. So the disciples have a plan. They're going to send the people into surrounding villages where they can purchase food and eat. But Jesus also has a different plan. Isn't it amazing (laughs) that doesn't he often have a different plan than the ones we concoct in our own strength and power and resources? His plan is always different, often different. So Jesus said, you feed them. (laughs) And they're like, hey, he's joking, right? We always knew he had a sense of humor, right? The disciples have nothing. Uh, There's a sea of need before them. Philip says, well, it's going to take two-thirds of a year's wage to feed everybody. The whole situation is a joke. It's comic. Now, remember, they haven't read the end of the story like you and I have. They, they, they don't know how this is going to end. They're just looking out all these people, 25,000 people, and Jesus said, you feed them. And they're like, yeah, right. So they're, you know, they're shaking their heads, you know, he-owing one another, and they're kind of waiting for Jesus to deliver the punchline. It doesn't come. He said, well, how much bread do you have? They said, well, five loaves and a couple of fish. So Jesus then says, well, have them sit down in groups of 50 and 100. Now, for the kingdom to advance, we need both organization and the power of God. To have the supernatural without organization, God's power turns to pandemonium. That frustrates the purposes of God. In this case, some people would not have gotten fed, Others would have had too much. It would have required way too much time. It leads to overall confusion and, in many cases, mob action. So organization is essential for God's power to be at work. Now, some think that any organization is Babylon. You know, we value spontaneity uh, as proof of the working of the Holy Spirit. We just want to be led by the Spirit, brother. Or, you know, Jesus is in control here. And, you know, and the true mark of of quintessential spirituality is when the pastor preaches without notes. I mean, that's the high water mark that the spirit was really moving and and then and that God's power was present. Well, I just want to tell you, my deep conviction is that a lack of organization, careful planning or thorough preparation are not evidences of God's power at work. Now, on the other hand. But to say, organization without the power of God and the supernatural uh, leads to structure with no life. The audience would have been well organized, sitting in groups of 50 to 100, and would have gone hungry. <laughs> One is not opposed to the other. We need both supernatural power and organization for God's power to be effectively uh, at work. Verse 41, Jesus, it tells us, looked up to heaven, which is actually probably more accurately how we should pray as we're giving thanks for our food, not with hands folded and eyes closed and heads bowed, but rather looking up to heaven with arms uplifted. It's a more biblical posture to say grace, okay? I bless you to do that at noon today in whatever restaurant you're at. He blessed those five loaves and those two fish, and he gave to the 12 to distribute. My conviction would be that the miracle of multiplication actually happened as the disciples broke the fish and the bread to give. And can you imagine the hoops and the hollers that were happening in that crowd of 25,000 people as they saw the bread and the fish multiply? That They weren't all sitting patiently and quietly. I don't think. It would have been like, whoop-de-doo, like crazy. 
they may have actually shouted and hollered a little bit. In church, no less. The kids running around, can you imagine? I can. Um, take it off the felt board into real life. Everyone ate till they were full. Verse 42 tells us they all ate as much as they wanted and ended up with 12 baskets left over. How did he do that? Well, let me just kind of land the plane here. We'll wrap it up. The feeding of the 5,000 is an exodus event. This is the new exodus where Jesus the Messiah himself feeds the crowd, the multitude, in the wilderness. No longer does the food drop out of heaven as manna did under Moses' command when God's people wandered for 40 years in the wilderness in the original exodus. Rather, heaven has now come to earth. Jesus is the bread of life come from heaven. And he brings God's provision to the people as a sign that the kingdom has arrived. And the parallel with Moses in the first Exodus would have been unmistakable to the crowd. In fact, John's record of this event shows us that the people then recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, the one that was promised by the prophets, prophesied to bring the new age to come, ushering in the time of peace and plenty, leading God's people into the era of shalom, peace and plenty. In fact, at that point, they wanted to take Jesus and make him the king. Friends, our needs are met in abundance by Jesus, the warrior king. He is modeling for the 12 and then all of Israel and now for every follower of Jesus to come that there is abundant provision in his kingdom. He meets all of our needs according to his riches in Christ. Our need for healing and forgiveness and restoration and freedom and joy and peace and security and comfort and friendship and love and significance and security in life. Jesus meets those needs in abundance. It's what he was modeling for us here. His resources are not limited. Where he leads and he guides, he will provide in abundance. That's powerful. He can take what we've got, our five loaves and our two fish, and he makes it more than enough. We may often feel that what we have is just a little. And the story teaches us that what we offer in a little, Jesus can take and make unlimited. Jesus isn't so concerned about what we have, but what we're willing to do with what we have. Kudos to the little boy who offered up his sack lunch. When he offered all that he had, Jesus took it and multiplied it. And when we give to Jesus everything we have, we can trust that he will provide everything we abundantly need. So our I.I. exam is this. Where do we need to see God's kingdom provision come? And how can we more fully trust him to break through and provide for me and my family, my five friends, my church family, and my community? Well, friends, we're climbing the mountain. We're climbing the mountain of Mark chapters 1 to 8. This coming week, we're encouraged to read Mark's gospel 7 and 8, where the, where the preparation of the warrior king is going to crown in the 8th chapter. Are you ready? All right, let's keep going for it. Lord, we're just grateful for this incredibly exciting adventure and, and seeing you in all kinds of brand new and challenging ways. Jesus, you are radical. And I pray that your grace would come to all of our lives to, to continue saying yes to following you in these radical and challenging and encouraging ways. 
put power on your word to our lives. And now, Lord, as we offer to you our, our offerings, the things that we've worked hard to earn, we pray that they'd serve as a token that says we choose to honor you and trust you as the owner of everything we've got. Thank you for blessing us in a way that we can now sow into the work of your kingdom. And, Lord, we lift our hearts and hands in song. Bring your kingdom as our prayer in your name. Amen.